What is up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Camarado with the Cross Continuum, and I here I'm here with the first interview that I've done in like six months, honestly, with Dr. Nicole Andriolo in Bozeman, Montana. I'm in Great Falls, Montana, so we're actually on the same time zone, which doesn't happen very often. But Nicole does something cool that I don't do, and she fits something that I love into a thing that I'm terrified of. And so I wanted to <laughs> pick her brain about it. Um, Nicole, I am going to run through what I know about you. Um, Perfect. And you can make any corrections. She went to Montana State, got her bachelor's in cell biology, awful, and neuroscience. <laughs> Go Bobcats. Uh, Go Bobcats. She... Got her DPT from the University of Montana, right? That's in Bozeman, right? Yep. That's in Missoula. So it's oh, all right. state. Gotcha. You work yep. for a- you work for APRS Physical Therapy and were nominated for the best physical therapist in the Glatton? Galatin? In the Gallatin. 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 Ah, you should have favorite. this now being like in the state. You should have all of the sayings and all of that good stuff. No, definitely not. Did you win that, by the way? I didn't win it, but um, I was, I think I was like second or something like that. I mean, I had just started working there. I'd been working there for like nine months. I was so going like, to say I, that I think you graduated in like, you know, 2021. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it was within the, within the same year. It's it, when you get into the physical therapy world and you look back, you realize if you're just like nice to people and do a good job, they're like, do you want to be the clinical director here? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but I'm I'm certain that your nomination was not uh, for nothing and that you should have won. Whoever won, they suck. Um, <laughs> uh, you've done work with dancers, aerialists, uh, but now have shifted to strokes, monocord, TBI, which is what terrifies me. Um, yeah. And I I think that's about it. I don't. Uh, what else do you got for me? Did I miss you, anything? You covered most of it. Yeah, I. Uh... I, I do a lot of everything and I came in like my very, I, I did like inpatient acute care as a clinical, I did um, outpatient orthopedic as a clinical. And then I was like, shoot, I have no idea what I want to do. I, like I felt as somebody who's like extremely type A and like always has to have like the next 10 years planned out. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I was like in a neuro class and I was like, this is awesome. This is what I want to do. And I spent um, my last clinical, which was 15 weeks up in Spokane doing inpatient spinal cord injury and complex orthopedic. And then I like shifted around to like TBI and stroke and uh, all those other areas. And that was like where my passion and my love for it grew. And I knew that when I came back to Bozeman, that was like where I want, like that was what I wanted to do. And we don't have inpatient rehab in Bozeman. There is no such thing that is anything similar to what they offered up there. Right. And so I came back and I was like, well, I'm going to do outpatient because all of those people still need outpatient. And I came into my current clinic and it was like, well, we don't really have that population and that's going to take some while to build. So you're still going to do orthopedics in with that. So like, that's where I still was like treating dancers and treating aerialists and doing athlete work. And I did a lot of orthopedic type like con ed and things in school that were based around that. So I felt like pretty comfortable with it, but yeah, absolutely. Like growing my experience and my um, like caseload filled with those people with those more complex conditions that everyone's scared of. What, what is it about neuroscience? I guess that makes you tick. Well, we had this conversation earlier, but part of it was like the felt that there was such a need for it. Like I felt I was really true, 
repeatedly doing physical therapy when I was doing it with the neurological population. When I chose my undergraduate degree, I knew that, so like the cell biology and neuroscience, I knew that I wanted to go into PT school. And I knew that if I did something that wasn't exercise science, I was going to be like a step above or be able to like, to look a little different. Um, and I really enjoyed it and I really liked doing it. And I had a lot of fun. And even, even with that background, I wasn't sure that was necessarily what I wanted to do. Um, but the nuances of the neurological system and the ability for it to regenerate and shift and change and adapt is something that's so neat to me. And the fact that we have like a very little understanding of what it does and how it changes and shifts and adapts is really, um, really interesting to me. It's kind of like feeding the brain is, is super neat, but also like very overwhelming all at the same time. Feeding the brain, you're talking about salmon and blueberries, right? Yes, exactly. Just salmon and blueberries. Like just, that's the key. That's our podcast can end now because we figured it out. Right. I mean, the, yeah, the neuroscience stuff and full transparency, I think I failed, I almost failed neuroscience, I think twice, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think we had four or five neuroscience classes in, in our school. And uh, I think the the last one before I went on my last clinical, the last like practical I had to do was um, like, you know, central, uh, like Meniere's disease or something like that, where there's some sort mm -hmm. of central vestibular something going on. And she was like, listen, I'm, you failed this, but I'm just going to let you go because it's not that it's not important enough to keep you from doing the stuff. And so just get out. So I never looked back when I, when it comes to neuroscience and, and honestly, now I think that's why I'm so interested in, in hearing about how you fit all this stuff in, because I just haven't looked at it since then. Yeah. Um, my very, like one of my only neuroscience courses when in my undergrad, I failed the first time. It was the only college class I ever failed. And it was like one of those dumb classes where it was like four tests made up your whole grade. And those tests were 10 points each. And it was like the, the worst. And the fact that I didn't turn out after that and be like, I'm never touching a human brain or looking at it ever again is shocking to me. And the fact that I like went back into it, it was like, this is all I'm going to do is kind of like very beyond my typical behavior but yeah it's a it's something that people are usually pretty like fearful of and very like like not sure how to manage and the human brain is like studying our there's this inherent bias with studying ourselves there's an even greater bias with studying our own brain so it's very interesting very interesting for sure um now you also, we're in our beta cohort. You, your brain trusted my brain enough to <laughs> take a leap of faith that I was going to teach you something of of substance. And honestly, it seems like from then you have taken the strength and conditioning stuff and run into spinal cord, traumatic brain injury, and stroke with it. Yeah, um, I think you did barbell rehab stuff uh, after that. Uh, were there any other courses that you ended up doing after? As far as that type of work, no, not like specifically weight training, right? And like here in the state, it's like you're very lucky if you get something in state that is like a con ed course, right? Like that that's like something you're interested in too. So it, when that came, I was like, absolutely. I went through PT school the same way that most people did. Um, which is that there was literally nothing about exercise prescription. And it was yeah. like us continuing to wait to see when that would happen. And then it was me getting out of school and being like, I still don't know. I still don't know anything about this. And I wasn't like 
a huge gym goer. I wasn't into weightlifting yet. And, um, and then my friend Kenzie texted me and was like, Hey, I know we're all in the same boat. I know we all don't know anything about this, but there's this beta cohort, like join in. And I was like, absolutely. And it was, it was like the first time I had heard like any of these terms or had heard anything about how to do any of these movements or provide feedback or analyze it. And it's such a huge part because even though I don't necessarily identify as an orthotherapist, like I get people under the barbell all the time. I get people doing these complex movements and I'm able to do it from like a mindset that's not sheer panic because I feel like that's sometimes what other orthotherapists do who aren't familiar with it is just approach it with sheer panic, underloading, not quite sure how to progress, not sure how to like go beyond what they were they were taught earlier. And so it was absolutely a huge shift in not only like how I practice ortho-wise, but how I went into the neuro field too, which has caused like some differences in how like I treat versus others treat as well. Um, which isn't a bad thing. It's just a different approach. Sure. And, and I mean, not only do you bring it into your clinical practice, which I want to get into further, but, uh, you're like the, the poster child for what I hope will happen is that you also like balls to the wall went into lifting as well. Yeah, I had never, I remember like the first time I even tried a deadlift variation, I was like in my third year of PT school. And I was like with a kettlebell, like friends, is this how you do this? And they're like, yeah, that's it. And I was like, okay. And then I like, wouldn't go up to a squat rack. Like it was too busy and there was too many people going on. And then it was finally like, okay, I'm going to commit to it. I'm like going to go all in on it. And I totally did. Um, it's like the most consistent I've ever been in my whole life with working out and like if you asked five years, like five years ago, Nicole, if that was something I'd be getting into, I'd be like, that's hilarious. Like, that's not me at all. And now it's like, I, I can't not talk about it. And I think, I think you're creeping up on a 250 pound deadlift now, right? Yep. I just, did hit you surpass it? I just hit 250. Yep. Which Whoa. was like big, big deal for me. Cause I just hit like my first year of like total, like going to the gym three days a week, working on my weightlifting because I like started out with like just a barbell. Like that was truly it. It was like, I knew how to do an RDL and that was it. And now it's like, I've got the variations and the different loads and the different timing and the different volume, like all of that in combination too, which is definitely translated over to like my practice as well. Yeah. I mean, you were the, I haven't told you this, but you were like the linchpin in why I added like actual training into the mentorship because like there wasn't, there wasn't actual training in the mentorship. Like, right. As of now, I write programming for anybody that goes through it so that they actually train while they're, they're going through the mentorship. And then they have the opportunity to retain on my roster as an athlete going forward. And it was ah. because you left and you were like, I still don't really get it. And went over to, um, to work with Jared right? Mm -hmm. uh, who's still your coach. And I was like, yeah. oh man, that would be such a big giant gap that I could fill easily. And so now it's for sure. Well, but and it made such a difference too, because it was like, your course was really the starting off point. And so I started doing it. And I mean, like, it doesn't, it didn't come naturally to me either, like coaching 10 clients a day through like, or trying to program these programs for them. And then getting done at the end of the day and being like, God, like, I don't have anything left in the tank for myself. I don't know if like, 
I could look at my own feedback and see, but it's so different. And so that was when it was like, okay, like this is translated to my clinical practice, but I also need to like feed what I'm doing. And so that, but I think that's so great that you're now offering that because it does, it totally clears the gap there. It's like what used to exist. There's not that issue anymore. Yeah. And, and there's just something that there's an intangible, something that you can't experience outside of just doing it, you know? Oh yeah. Um, it, you know, we have, we have so many folks and, you know, I, I freaking make people's noses bleed on here talking about the physical activity guidelines, but not only do not even 20% of the population of the world hit, you know, the physical activity guidelines, but you know, uh, I can't remember the percentage of providers that don't even know what they are. And yeah. I'm sure there's an even smaller percentage of providers that don't hit the guidelines and don't know what they are and are telling f- people to get more active. And it's like, what you know what sort of weird dance is this yeah it's it's very hypocritical it's like mm, you know i mean it it is i mean how many people do it it's like you i mean and it's the same thing like i see you post about it. it's like and other people it's like when you have a pt that coaches you on your weightlifting but you never get back to like actually weightlifting in the program right or like in your pt and it's like how are we supposed to like and i always tell people it's like if you were having a baby, the person you wouldn't want in the room was your cardiologist. Like that would not be helpful. Right. Yeah. But that's, but that's the seriousness of it. Like you would never allow that to happen. So why would you ever allow somebody who had no idea about weightlifting or anything else? I mean, I say the th- same thing about spinal cord injury and stroke. I'm like, you would not want one of our ortho PTs in here trying to coach you through your rehab on this. There's just, I mean, it's not that they're bad at their job. It's just not their specialty. And like, we should take that for what it is. It's like, they are very good at other things. This is not what they're good at. Yeah. There's there's just certain nuances that you can't glean from talking about lifting, right? You can't really understand something like the Valsalva maneuver until you do a lift with and without it. You can't, talk about mixed grip or about straining or about all that sort of stuff. But I can stand on this soapbox all day. I want to know. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I want to know how strength and conditioning fits into the TBI stroke and spinal cord. No. Yeah. You said spinal so cord I was, pon- I like pondered this all week. Cause I was like, how do I put this into words other than like, you've got to do it. Um, I think there's a huge, there's a huge amount of fear when it comes to like neurotherapists implementing some of these procedures and principles into their treatment of people with neurological conditions. And I think what it tends to come down to is it tends to come down to like underloading, which is wild because if we look at our principles of neuroplasticity that you had to like memorize as a student and all of that, one of the big, a couple of the biggest things are intensity, repetition, specificity, saliency. And most of the time we like hit a good chunk of those things. We're feeding the brain. We're looking on motor coordination. We're lurking, uh, working on um, like those neuroplasticity effects to try and get recovery to happen. But in the process, we miss out on the intensity and repetition part of it. And I think sometimes when people think strength and conditioning, they think it's like, it's just weights. It's just weights. It's just a barbell. That's what it is. And that doesn't apply here, but that's not it at all. There's so many principles that we talk about, like 
We talk about periodization, we talk about intensity, we talk about volume. Those things don't have to have a barbell attached to them for them to work. Now it's more fun if we do. And I have a lot of people who do like barbell, like I have a guy right now who's a paraplegic that we have him doing barbell work. Like we have him doing landmines from a seated position. We have him on a mat table doing bench press, things like that, that make him feel strong and empowered and improve self-efficacy, right? I think the other thing too, is that people forget that there's like, we put people with neurological conditions in a fragility category. It's the same reason why people are very hesitant to load older adults or to introduce these strength and conditioning principles there is because there's this fragility idea. I mean, when we're talking like just thinking spinal cord injury, people are worried about fractures. They're worried about skin issues. They're worried about causing an autonomic dysreflexia event. They're worried about all of these other things that could happen if we load somebody too heavily or we do it too intensely. And instead we're missing, we just say like, we're not going to do it at all. And so we miss out on the benefits of it. Like if we do it right and we progressively load and we use these strength and conditioning principles, we get people stronger. I think it's also important to realize, and this is like the thing that I grapple with is like, it's not all strength and conditioning, but it's that on top of our neuro principles, right? It's using both of those things in combination to get the best outcomes because the research on resistance training is it's great. It's good. It's fabulous. It improves strength. That's awesome. But if we don't do it in combination with our functional mobility items, with our things that really matter to the patient, like their transfers, their being able to propel their wheelchair independently, we don't see those improvements in it. We can't just resistance train and think that's going to carry over to those other things. It helps and it should. Um, and it should be done. I think of it as kind of like an accessory movement that we would do on top of like our bigger lifts, right? So it's in that same category of we have to do it. It's important that we do it. Um, but we also have to stick to like the bread and butter of why we're doing it. And so all of those things can get in combination together. Yeah. I mean, sense? when, yeah, when you say that, it just makes me think of like sports specific training. Yeah. And, um, the way that, the way that I usually think about sports specific training, at least for non like strength sports is that there's a certain amount of energy that we need to a lot to just like strictly strength training. And then there's a certain amount that we need to a lot to sports specific skill training, doing things as close to the context of competition as possible, but there's less of, um, not no energy, but there's less energy that we're kind of mixing the, or, or trying to like marry the two where we're doing strength training that looks like sport specific stuff, because the context just are so different, right? If, if, and it might be different for the stuff that you're doing, but I, I kind of liken it to, you know, doing maybe supine 90, 90 internal rotation for a baseball player. It's like, it's going to add something. It's not going to mm-hmm. add what maybe just throwing and uh, a baseball at like, pitching speeds would do for that. And so when you talk about kind of getting somebody, as I would say, yoked and then bringing them to that specific stuff yoked and then training that specific stuff with that newfound strength is, is kind of like, I like that. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And it's very specific. Like I think about like, I can train and I've talked to patients about this because they're like, I'm sitting at home doing like my resisted tricep extensions all day long. And it's not making my transfers any better. And it's like, well, how often are you doing your transfers? It's like, well, once in the morning and once in the evening, I'm like, not enough, not enough, not enough. First of all, your resistance bands aren't enough. 
and your transfers aren't enough, like the current ones that you're doing, we have to bring those things together. We can do some really solid tricep strengthening, some really good, you know, lower back scapular type work too, but we have to practice those skills as well. And those have to be intense too. Um, I took a really great course through the SRA lab, which was on high intensity gait training for people post-stroke and spinal cord injury. And it was all about the intensity factor, all about, you know, getting heart rate up in the 75 to 85% range, because we need to, in order for neuroplasticity to occur, it was all about like how we try to split our areas too much in physical therapy. We work on balance. We work on strength. We work on standing. We work on sitting all of those things. And we don't do any of them well, Right. And so we need to be doing one thing, be doing it consistently, working on a certain skill, not jumping around in order to be able to really magnify that skill. And it relates to a lot of things other than just walking, but it's that whole idea of specificity of training, intensity, repetition, all of that. And it can be applied to different areas too, not just walking. Um, but once again, it's all these things taking them, right? These continuing education courses and saying, this is helpful, this is helpful, but I also want to include this. And I also think it's important that we include this. There's no like one single answer to neurological physical therapy as with anything else, um, but not getting like so tied up in the weeds that we don't, you know, we don't allow people to make errors or we allow them to make too many errors or we don't include the higher resistances or we overload our patient, right? It's all about that balance. There's one thread that I want to pull on there, which was the, um, the kind of uh, criteria of intensity for neuroplasticity. Can you talk yeah. more about that, like 70 or 80% and what? Yeah. So th this was specifically related to gait training, but truly I think it applies to all of like our training related to what we do. They found that, uh, so we could have somebody doing a stepping activity, right? And if their heart rate they, they trained it. There's many, many articles. The clinical practice guideline for high intensity gait training goes way into it. But if we have people working at those lower intensities versus working at those higher intensities, um, the differences are dramatic in their independence and their, and it's funny because we get all this overflow from walking training into strength and balance as well, right? Like training strength doesn't necessarily improve walking, but training walking does improve strength. Right. Which is a very interesting like paradigm, too, because it's like, hmm, I never thought of that. But um, so it's the 75 to 85 percent of your heart rate max. And it's that you most of us are usually averaging like fourteen hundred steps with patients per session. And the actual goal should be twenty five to five thousand or twenty five hundred to five thousand. Right. Like how many times like as a PT student, did you get that many steps in a session with a patient? Right. Like but that's how many it has to be in order for that repetition and that intensity, because they basically tried it on all different spectrums. Like what's the minimum clinically effective dose? And that was it. That was it for. Um, returning to walking. And that was mostly like in our spinal cord injury, like incomplete spinal cord injury and stroke zones, right? Like that wasn't taking somebody who had like complete quadriplegia, like didn't really have an opportunity to return to walking or um, those kinds of people too. So they had to have a certain uh, level of ambulatory. Yeah. I was going to ask about like, if that was a minimum effective dose right before you said it. And I mean, mm -hmm. that, that definitely makes sense. You know, we, we talk about, there's no like a minimum for exercise, but there is a like, there is a minimum dose that depending on the person's activity level is going to push things forward or not. Right. So now, now you mentioned like the intensity and volume of like 
almost non-strength stuff. What like does periodization start to creep into stuff like transfers or stuff like, um, you know, sports specific training? Like, are you like, all right, we need to do like weighted transfers or is like, what, what does that look like? Yeah. So basically the term periodization and neurological rehab is looked more like at error augmentation. That's like the term they use and error, and it's, it's used pretty much exclusively in neuro. And this is like a common theme. Error augmentation is when somebody does something pretty dang decent, whether it's transfer walking, et cetera, they do it with more success than errors. And so we automatically make it harder. So that is like putting a weighted vest on a person who is doing their transfers. Like maybe their transfers aren't a hundred percent where they need to be, to be able to doing all the different surfaces in their house. So you put a weighted vest on them, or you have somebody where they are getting no hip extension for their sit to stands, right? They come up to the top and they're hanging over. So you take a band and you wrap it around their hips and you pull them into hip extension. And the idea is, is that the cerebellum, here's all the neuroscience stuff. This is the stuff I love. The cerebellum feeds on the fact that there's an error being made and it's different from what we usually do. And so the cerebellum increases the motor output. It goes, we are going to increase the amount of um, effort we're putting into this. We're going to increase that weight. So for example, I love this technique. If I have somebody who's walking, who's like dragging a foot behind them, right? Like they can take sort of a positive step, but they can't really clear that foot. I take a 10 pound weight and I strap it to that leg. Like it makes it harder. Right. And it's frustrating. And they're like, you're the worst PT ever. Like, why are we doing this? I'm like, I promise. And as soon as you take the weight off their foot clears every single time. And so it's the idea that the cerebellum is still thinking that we're having that weight on the ankle. And so we're going to augment that same thing. So I take the weighted vest off of my patient who we just practiced transfers with, and now they're flying, right? So that's part of the, are we really training strength? Not really, but are we training motor coordination? Are we training motor output? Are we feeding the brain and all that? Absolutely. Right. And so it's kind of like drop down sets on squats, right? Like by the end, you're like, you're feeling like this is the lightest squat I've ever done in my whole life, right? So it's it's very much a similar technique. Super cool. It's all the cerebellum. It's all motor output, but it's something we absolutely do. And so that periodization is kind of a principle that we use there, but it's for different reasons. Right? Yeah. You're putting a, you're putting a baseball bat donut on them and then taking it off so they swing faster. Yeah, exactly. That's a hundred percent what it is. It's the way that we like all train sports and, you know, you play with a heavier ball, you do, you know, you run further than you need to, you run faster than you need to. Right. And I, I like the idea of them getting to, to good enough and then being Mm -hmm. like, we just need to do more so that I definitely explain this to to patients and athletes in the past where it's like, we want to push the ceiling up so high that, you just don't really experience anything that is going to sensitize you to these symptoms or whatever, right? If, if it's a, a tolerance issue where you're just not tolerating whatever uh, stressor is coming in and that's producing symptoms or, uh, or something along those lines, then we want to train to the point where your tolerance just gets so high that basically everything in your regular life falls underneath that. And so when you get folks to good enough um, for a transfer or sit to stand or something like that, um, and you're like, well, you're going to experience something in your life that is not good, like good enough isn't going to work for that. And so we're going to have to kind of account for that by putting more weights on you or something like that. Yeah, it, that's totally it. That's like, 
your regular environment, you've trained just to be above the threshold of that. And we want to get you further than that. Like we want you to be able to transfer into the weird chair at the bar, or we want you to be able to like go traveling and be able to do a floor transfer in a hotel room or something like that, where the environment changes and the demands change, but you've actually prepped for this the whole time. Sure. And I mean, as, as an athlete yourself, now you can understand the uh, benefit of exposing yourself to many different contexts uh, mm-hmm. and developing skills within those contexts. And it's not even a change of context in that there's a different movement variation all of itself. But I mean, just changing the weight is changing the context, right? If we take the training variables of, of volume and frequency, intensity and, and movement variation, all of those are create a context specifically. And once we start to change any of those, the context changes and there are new skills that are going to be produced from that. Uh, and so it definitely the exposure to different things. And actually I have another thread that I want to pull after this. I'm just ready. Myself of. Um, the exposure to different contexts is good because the, the world is not black and white. Um, and you're going to get to that chair. That's too deep as uh, mm-hmm. a lot of patients would say back when I was, yes, there. it's that leather couch, like the <laughs> recliner. Oh, no, I'm never going to get up from that. This is my too pride deep. and joy. And if I can't get out of this, then I won't get out of it. I'll stay here forever. And it's like, okay, yeah, probably um, I think I lost it anyway. Oh, the thread is gone. I know I it's fine. I don't want to linger on it. So, <laughs> at, so the, the stuff that you've been doing, have you seen a, from the strength and conditioning standpoint, like a, uh, a tangible or an objective benefit to adding in, like training principles into rehab? Yeah, I think it mostly comes down to if I'm doing it right, it comes down to independent, like if we just like sit on the transfer idea, right? Like if I can get somebody, and this is, this is where I really like to go with it. I tell people when you come in here, we work on the things that you can't do alone. Right. Like, and that's truly what like my job is as a physical therapist. You're going to come in here and we're going to work on the things that you can't do at home. You either need assistance or you need to be able to um, or you need guidance or you need some some sort of thing that we have going on in here. Um, and at home, I'm going to have you go through this program that includes all kind of the things that we need to augment your performance of the activities that we do in here. Right. So it means you know, it's, it's the person who doesn't do, for example, it's the person that doesn't do their exercises until they come in to see you. And it's kind of like, okay, like we're still at the same level versus the person that comes in and is like, actually, I don't need your help with this transfer today. Because I noticed that as I'm doing these other things at home, my transfers have also gotten better. Um, And so that's where the tangible, like, obviously I don't have data to draw on from that, but it's improved self-efficacy it's improved independence with those transfers. It's a guidance on how their body feels and how their body responds to different things. Because oftentimes in these scenarios, our feedback systems are way off. They're way wonky. Pain is not the same. We get spasticity instead, um, or we get neuropathic pain or things where it's like not necessarily able to, it's a new way of interpreting how our body feels. So it's also that improvement. It's like, oh, I might've done too much because now I'm experiencing increased spasticity or now I'm in increasing. So it's improving people's ability in their new body to say, I'm learning more about how my body interprets things too. I can, I can only imagine what role self-efficacy plays in a scenario like um, traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury or oh stroke. Gosh, I mean, yeah. 
I know that and it's been a long time, so please correct me. I know that something after like five years that they're basically like, this is fine. This is my new norm. I'm not depressed about this anymore. Um, as far as like those really, you know, paraplegia, quadriplegia, those like, like all of those things that are really life-changing, uh, at least from my neuro classes, I remember that after a certain amount of time, a certain amount of years, they're like, ah, this is fine. But I can only imagine what self-efficacy, which is like the feeling that I can manage things myself, the situation, I can only imagine what a change in that would do for basically quality of life and, and disability going forward. Absolutely. And I know that there's a lot of research on people's levels of motivation. I mean, you're on a bunch of meds that depress your system. Like that's the other thing that I like that people often forget, like you're on a bunch of central nervous system depressants after this type of thing, right? Things that inhibit spasticity, inhibit neuropathic pain. And that doesn't just target those things that targets how you feel about the entire world and about your condition. And you are learning to be an entirely new version of yourself. Um, so being able to give people something that they can control, right? In a world of now living, like you can't control much is huge, right? Like I can control how much effort I put into my weightlifting. I can control like how consistent I am with this. I can, I am the person doing these movements. I am the person participating in this. This is not being done to me. I am doing it right. It's huge. And I think a lot of us get that from like our weightlifting or exercising, things like that, right? Like the mental health boost, all of that. And so, you know, I, I think that even more than like the physical aspect of it, it's that it's the independence. It's the, I'm still going to give you an exercise program for home. I'm still going to expect you to do it. And we're still going to move forward on this. Now there is the other side of that coin as well. Uh, I and I'm sure you've been lifting long enough to have failed lifts or to have yeah. had bad sessions or to have felt the existential crisis that is thinking that you're never going to get stronger or never improve performance. Have you, have you experienced anybody going in that sort of direction where um, they have been introduced to maybe some of the strength conditioning stuff and it just hasn't gone the way that you had anticipated? Mm hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that just happens in general with recovery, too. You have two types of people that come out of like these injuries. And the first type is like, I'm going to walk again. And that's it. Like, there is no other option. I'm going to walk again. And I'm not even going to plan for life in a wheelchair. So there's like a whole level of issues and coming to realization associated with that. And so it's like, well, I don't need to work on X, Y and Z, because that is not something that is related to me walking. I'm only gonna work on those things. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is this is my life now and there's nothing I can do about it, right? There's no getting better, there's no getting stronger. So you're managing those feelings on top of like, maybe I don't get as strong as I typically, or like I don't make those gains as fast as I usually would have. A lot of these people were extremely active. And so it's like, now I'm sitting here doing a, tricep extension with three pounds when I used to be like downhill skiing, uphill skiing, climbing the ridge, no problem. And yeah, no, seriously. And it's like, and now this is a totally different life. Um, and so in those scenarios, when it comes up, sometimes it's a switch of focus. Sometimes it's like things have become repetitive. Things have become different, just are staying the same. And sometimes I feel like that's what happens a lot with our folks with like, who are wheelchair users and they're working like just their upper extremity and they are limited to what weights they have, what equipment they have, 
um, and like what assistance they have from other people. And so it can feel very mundane. It can get very monotonous. And it's kind of using the creativity aspect to make things new and different, but still working towards the same goal. I which remember. Is, is, yeah. Mm-hmm, I which remember is, the thread. Yeah. Okay. I'm Sorry, ready. continue. No, go ahead. But that was basically what I was going to say is like the creativity aspect of it is, is finding new ways to do things, right? Finding new ways to make stuff adaptive, finding new ways to um, get people to be passionate about again and feel like this was made for them rather than like trying to fit them to something that wasn't really meant for them in the first place. And what a difficult challenge motivating people to do something without any sort of these things that happen, right? It's like, I know only one of your limbs works, but we're going to do X, Y, Z and you're going to like it. Um, All right. So the other thread that I want to pull on, and this kind of goes with one of the questions, which is like, what can clinicians learn from strength and conditioning principles? And -hmm. it goes back to the the changes of context and, and picking up new skills with new movements. I'm certain that the part of part of the mentorship was to expose people to a lot of new movements, right? Ex- expand your movement library, because once you once you accept the fact that movement is arbitrary and it just can be whatever, and we can load mm-hmm. it, however, uh, a lot of movements kind of open up to be used as tools. I'm sure in the clinic, right? Like, like I have, you just make up stuff on the, on the fly when you're with somebody who has a very specific need, you yeah. know, in the ortho world, as somebody who had now has, because of training conditioning, a increased movement library, has that translated into, I guess, how you're conducting yourself in the clinic? Like how I'm treating or... Well, are you are you more creative in the oh, yeah. in the gym space oh, yeah. for the folks that need that sort of training? Absolutely. So I'll preface this with the fact that I have like zero neurological equipment. Like I don't have any of the fancy stuff that anyone has. I don't have lifts. I don't have standing frames. I don't have fancy walkers. Like I am purely limited to what we have orthopedic wise. Like we have a squat rack, which is amazing. Like that's a thing that a lot of people don't have. So I am, I'm blessed beyond that. Learning, building my movement library has allowed me to say, you know what, for this person, I need more anterior delt. I'd love to do an incline chest press with them, but this person does not have the mobility for that, does not have the stability of their trunk for that does not like, I can't get them on a bench, but I still need to find a movement that is very similar to that. Right. And so that's where the creativity comes in. Like, okay, I'm going to use a wedge to prop them. And then I'm going to use a hand grip assist and I'm going to grab so-and-so to help me if they're available. Um, or I'm going to do these other variations. Right. So having that larger movement library has allowed me not only to say like, I've done this movement, And I know that this is where we can get the benefit from. Um, But I know that you have your own specific set of needs. And so we have to modify that to fit you, right? Like, so you can be successful so that you can complete it, but so that it's still a challenge. Um, So, yeah. I mean, each, each new movement that you do and understand plugs into like a, just a bigger picture. You know, I, I kind of liken it to a puzzle that you just continue to find pieces to, Mm-hmm. Um, and when folks get too caught up in one, one sport or one strength sport, for example, like I, I recently stopped just focusing on powerlifting to get back into CrossFit because the, the novel movements and I can do a whole lot of stuff. And 
it's kind of it's kind of interesting just the I think if we stuck a lot of physical therapists in just like novel movement classes, whether that be CrossFit for three months and powerlifting for three months and jujitsu or or whatever, I think that they would come out with a, you know, if if we were to use cliche terms, a lot of tools in their toolbox for the the folks that they see because everybody is is unique in their presentation and needs something different from you. And I honestly cannot even think of the unique ways that people present to you that you probably need to. to self for i mean some of the videos that you post on tiktok and instagram are uh things that would never come into my brain you know whether that's creating a weight vest with a gait belt and, and ankle weights or yes you know right like the the cheap man's like weight vest right i remember in the course it was like i don't have a weight vest what do i do and then it was like i don't know let's try it and so i tied someone up to a sled i tied them up to a sled because he was post-stroke so he had no use of his left arm um, but I needed the resistance for him to develop power generation. So I literally tied him to like, who's so mad at me. He's like, this is so heavy. I'm like, but you're doing it. Yay. Oh my gosh. Congrats. And then I like came back and I was like, tied my patient to the sled. Like, there we go. It worked just <laughs> fine. But it, no, it's, it's a lot of that. And it's working with what you have. I mean, and there's some ways like you can't get around in things. Like you have to learn different ways to target muscle groups because like, if you have a person with an ankle like plantar flexion contracture makes weight bearing through that side really, really hard. So how are you going to modify that? How are you going to use those different things? Or like a heavy paretic upper extremity? How do I, and like external cueing is like the best friend of neurophysical therapy. Like how do I create an environment that the patient can understand and interpret well to get the movement that I want? Right. So yeah, it's a lot of creativity, but that's also why, like, I still love doing some ortho stuff and getting to be a part of it because it helps me in the terms of what I do neuro wise, like taking a stroke course. And then the next weekend taking the barbell rehab course, and then taking a wheelchair fitting course, like a couple weeks later, you know, like that stuff all comes in together for me. Yeah. The the ability to be a generalist in a specialty, I think, is quite helpful. Um, and now, now that you mentioned external queuing is like the bread and butter of that, I, I want to pick your brain about the the remote stuff that you've started to delve into, right? Mm-hmm. The Synapse Fit. What yeah. a great, what a great name. Um, and as somebody who I, I it was, I think two weeks ago, I was in Dallas, Texas, presenting on remote wellness, right, mm-hmm. for for cash clinics to really any clinic, but most of your cash clinics to like create a, a better wellness program. Cause wellness programs now kind of suck, um, to create a better wellness program. I fielded the question of this doesn't sound ac- uh, accessible for folks who might need more care, basically who have mm-hmm. a care, who have a caregiver or who have somebody that stays with them that needs to assist them with things. Um, how do you, I guess, how can we make strength training while you might not be there more accessible to folks who need it? Yeah. So one of the big things that I've like kind of where I'm going with, especially like my marketing with this is connecting the, between the coach and the physical therapist, right? Like what have you observed in clinic, right? Because no two injuries are alike. No two presentations are alike. You could have somebody who says they are an Asia D spinal cord injury at the level of T4 right? Like how, how happy does that make you feel? But that person and that person both with the same, um, diagnosis 
work completely differently. They have completely different symptoms and things like that. It comes down to really getting to know the person and trying trying things out and saying, this is not going to be successful the first week. It's probably not going to be successful the second week, but put, put the time and effort in so that I can get the good feedback, right? So that I can understand what works and what doesn't work. I really like to start with like the low hanging fruit of like, you should be able to do like at a minimum, you should be able to do this. Let's do this for a week and see how it goes. Like, obviously we don't want to spend too much time there. Right. But we might find some really key valuable information from that. Right. Like I think the, the concern people want to come in and they want to be doing things right away, but if we don't get that baseline information, it's really, really hard. Um, as far as accessibility goes, I, it's part of, it's partially just being creative. Like what do you have in your home that we can use? Cause a lot of these people are not like going to the gyms, they don't have, like, they may not have a caregiver or anybody like that at all. Um, they may be working with very specific equipment. How can we challenge that? And it's not always, like I said, strength and conditioning doesn't always have to be barbells and dumbbells and things like that, but it can be those other components that are key to participating in that, like trunk stability, core stability, being able to do those. I mean, I have a person right now, like they're, um, one of their exercises is their transfers, right? Like that is part of it um, because that's their goal, right? And so it's feeding into those goals and being like, what is your goal with all of this? There is not, a lot of people don't feel accepted in those spaces. There are some great gyms that have amazing coaches that do great things, but then they're also not like on the neuro basis or they don't really know like, how to be helpful. So being open to learn for coaches that want to get in there, but don't have a lot of experience, that's super helpful. Getting feedback from people, what works, what doesn't work. Um, that's where the accessibility comes from. It's like being the joint decision maker in this. Like in a lot of cases, I think a lot of coaches are like, here's your program, like here it goes. And in this, it has to be a source of communication because there's gonna be stuff like, UTIs and weird bone growths and pressure ulcers and things like that. So being able to be fast and quick and think on your feet and offer this to people um, is a big deal. I, I, I hope that not just that, but throughout the whole chat we've had that people pick up the similarities between your world and, and maybe my world or their world, because everything that you've said has resonated with everything that I do with my remote athletes and, and the, the, uh, physical therapists that I, that I coach and teach in this stuff and like the feedback during the remote coaching is everything, right. It's yeah. you. And I, you know, there's a similar saying with pain as I can only know it as well as you can describe it to me, right. As mm -hmm. well as you can communicate it. And, and when it comes to new athletes or athletes who I'm taking on, or it's always like we need to manage these expectations of the first month is just going to kind of suck, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't know you and you don't know me and I need to learn how you go and you need to learn how I go. But the reservation of feedback is not going to help anybody. And and even in like the physical therapy world too, if we're switching back to, to clinical care, it's like you need to tell me what's going on to the best of your ability so that I can give you a more pointed recommendation. And it's the same with the coaching world. Like if you just say, I did the workout, it's like, all right, well. Yeah. It's like, and that's, that's other things. Like I'm learning a lot about the remote coaching progress because I remember that I am the person that's like, if I'm even going to be like 
a day late on my workout, I'm like, Hey, I just want to let you know, like, I'm going to be in, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get it in. And so that's, that's my behavior. And that's not the behavior of everyone either. Um, but I also feel like it's such a neat thing to be able to participate in this because people who invest their time and energy and money into this are invested in it, right? They want to be performing. They want, and that's not always the case with physical therapy, right? Like it's a, I got a referral to come here. So I'm here, but like, and you can't force people to want it, but in this environment, it's, you know, people want to be pushed. They want the, they want the feedback. They want to get their money's worth. They want to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, when you have people that are reaching out to you, like you are, it's, it's great because they self-select themselves to do well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when you start to get into like reaching out to people to ask if they want to be coached by you, it's like, yeah, sure. You know, but it doesn't really work the same where you have that person who is like, I want this and I'm searching out Nicole because she does what I need. And it's those people that you want, because those are the folks that are going to spend the time and give the feedback and do that sort of thing for sure. Yeah. It's, it's tough in the world of like accessibility. Um, because like I said, people don't feel welcome in the space. Um, but like, there's a whole lot of people who really care to welcome those people into the space and really want to like be a part of it. And so the more people there are, I mean, the thing is, is that insurance is like the main limiter of a lot of PT stuff being ended abruptly, right? Like this person is nowhere close to being really done with their rehab or recovery process. Um, and they still need guidance, right? This is somebody with a brain injury who's not going to be able to self-select like when and how they do things, but with a schedule, with somebody count like encouraging them, um, it's a big deal. It's a big difference. For sure. Um, I have one last question before okay. we're done. And it's how do you manage to make your brain graphics so good? <laughs> I draw this. I draw you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where? Uh, like the on iPad, there's a app called Procreate. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. So it's like a combination. Like you, you had your like Netter Anatomy book. So it's like stuff like that, but pared down to really what matters. Like I don't need to see the little tiny, you know, blood vessels to each of these areas. And it needs to be. Uh, I use them with patients all the time. Um, it needs to be something that makes sense, right? Like it needs to translate. Um, people have no idea what their spinal cord looks like or how it was affected or what, what that means for symptoms in their brain. But it's like, they see it and they're like, oh, well, no wonder, like I can't use the right side of my body. Right. Like it's, it's stuff like that, where it's like, well, that tracks or no wonder my vision is weird or no wonder my emotions are all over the place. Right. So yes, just drawing all all of the side gigs, all the side gigs. I wasn't in my top 10 guesses as to where you got that from. I thought you had. I thought that there was some like, I don't know, medical bank of cartoons or there was you had there was like some Etsy or you fivered it like, can you draw me a brain or something? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen Nicole's page, check it out because those are all (laughs) so much, so much different things. Um, Speaking of which, where can folks find you if they want to listen to your stuff? So I'm on Instagram as 
at the Bozeman PT, B-O-Z-E-M-A-N, um, which is where I live. People always ask me that. They're like, why that name? I'm like, well, that's where I'm from. So that's it. Um, so that's my like PT treatment ideas, drawings, type things like that, study tools, which is a lot of what people do, like treatment ideas they love. And as well as like the drawings, like I'm studying for boards and this is what I need. Um, my other page for like my wellness coaching um, is at Synapse Fit. Um, S-Y-N-A-P-S-E and then I'm on TikTok with Joe at the Bozeman PT and um, but yeah I have a link tree on all of those so it links up everything and um, so you can access it all on Insta. I wish I could do as well as you on TikTok. We have like, yeah, well, like 12,000 followers so like close. I, yeah, I know right people just love the humor you just got to hit them with the humor. I think what it is is it's a lot of it's a lot more of you than it is of me right? Yeah. It's, like it's a lot of voiceover on your end and not a lot of voiceover. So I think, I think maybe you have I need to... very, very smart things to say. Nobody but likes that. Remember that the human brain <laughs> has like a five second attention span Dude. and it's for energy. Like me in the dance and theater world, like the TikTok thing makes sense. You have to be a part of that. <laughs> I don't know. I know. And you got to uh, get on the train of the voiceover. I uh, promise like one trending sound in a voiceover and you're going to, you're going to hit it big. I know my, my TikTok currently fluctuates between like smart sounding things and me shit posting <laughs> memes that I laughed at and somehow could fit them into physical therapy, strength and conditioning world. So I do like them. I do like them a lot. <laughs> Well, I, everyone follow Joe on TikTok. He woo. he needs it and wants it for all good reasons. I need the dopamine, people. Please help me out. <laughs> um, well, thank you for answering all my questions. I appreciate it. It's very Absolutely. insightful. I'm glad. I'm glad it didn't like bust the brain too much. It, I mean, I can get into brain busting, but it's like it's dull. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. Well, Thanks, thank Joe. you. I hope uh, I'm going to put all your contact info in the in the uh description that's what it's called and uh, this will be up tomorrow awesome i'm excited thanks joe thanks cool